alphabetical episode. Is it really? I think that, I mean, this is penultimate, right? Because next week we're YZ, and I actually get wow. the easy letter that time. I get the Y. Oh, See, I think the Z is easy because I'm, I totally know who I'm going to do. Are you doing Zelda Fitzgerald? No, we already did her. No, we didn't. Oh, I meant, um. Zora Neale Hurston? No. Who was I thinking? Um, the other Zelda. I'll think of it. Yeah. But no, I'm going to do, or Zelda from Link. No, I wish. <laughs> I, I truly Princess wish. Zelda. <laughs> no, I'm going to do Zora Neale Hurston for sure. Mm. So, spoiler alert, guys. <laughs> I don't know who I'm doing yet. Yeah. But then the week after that, we'll probably have like some sort of short mini episode mm-hmm. because we will be on our beach vacation yes but what happens is we're there for an entire week so not only do we not record one but we also don't research for the next one so we're gonna figure some things out maybe we'll do that peter pan thing we alluded to oh yeah that would be so fun something short and sweet but also interesting yes it'll be fun whatever we do so stay tuned for that Mm -hmm. um but that's future stuff no we're not here about future stuff we're here to talk about the now, the here, the, the why, stuff. the today, the herstory. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women from history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. No, definitely not. even not. close. <laughs> no. Professional drinkers. We're getting... Um, Someday is really good. Mm-hmm. We got a correction this week. Ooh, Monopoly not invented during the Great Depression. Oh. <laughs> so I did at some point read an article about it getting popular during the Great oh, Depression. That's not when it was invented. invented. And um, the correction er sent me a podcast link to learn all about <gasps> oh, how Monopoly was invented. I love that. I know. It was super great. I haven't played Monopoly since I think the Great power outage of 2003 stop it's time it's <laughs> i'll play with you you know there's a board game bar in baltimore now what yes and we should go my okay. friend works there i'll get wasted like, because monopoly yeah. is so long <laughs> also we should tell your brother to put his board games in that place oh, yeah That'd great be really idea because yeah you go mm-hmm. and if you you can bring your own board game mm-hmm. byob right G, or <laughs> you can rent from their library for like five bucks oh perfect yeah it's wonderful mm-hmm. So I think it's more of like a D&D club uh, mm. <laughs> that just invites other people sometimes to play right. Monopoly. To like be around them yes. so that they feel better. Um, but you are busy playing Scrabble. Yes. And you have to stay focused. And you're like flipping over the tiles and yeah. like everything. <laughs> you know, it's so much. Yeah. Maybe you snuck a few extra in your pocket. Mm. Uh, a fian- couple of the blank ones. <laughs> yes. Fiance used to do that in school. <gasps> When they were playing Scrabble. That's tricky. Because he would get in trouble at school and then hang out in the office with his friend Jamina. And they would play Scrabble. And they would play Scrabble. That's fun. Well, you're doing that. You're in the office at school (laughs) playing Scrabble. This is a very specific scenario you're now a part of. Um, So you don't have time to look up pictures of these women. No. So we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical. Physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I'm doing Xantope, who is um, typically depicted uh, in literature and in like um, 
stage plays and pictures as a dark-haired Grecian woman with mm-hmm. a scowl on her face. At the very least, she's like throwing some shade at somebody. Her hair is curly around the top, and she is shown as a woman with like a full face and mm-hmm. then like a very straight nose in her profile from her nose up to her forehead. Okay. Um but Xantope literally means yellow horse. So even though she's depicted as brunette, I would venture to guess that she had very light hair as a child. Interesting. So that is what Xantope (laughs) looks like. All right. Um, So I am doing the one and only Whitney Houston. She is a tall, statuesque, light-skinned black woman with the most beautiful face Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. she has soft clear skin a huge smile with perfectly white teeth these incredible cheekbones and bright eyes that just exude joy her hair is typically in big curls that cupped up with her high energy and her trim figure was always clad in the latest style that were either cute and easy to dance in or like the most elegant ball gowns oh yeah And in her wax statue, though, she is wearing a white kind of jumpsuit kind of thing uh, from when she famously sang the national anthem in Mm -hmm. 1991 at the Super Bowl, which we will talk about. That (laughs) is lovely. (laughs) And that's it. I mean, she's just beautiful. She's stunning. Sometimes (sighs) I watch old music videos of her just Mm -hmm. because, like, you know, you have to be like, oh. And her face is just so lovely. Yeah. Like she looks like she has a Snapchat filter on her, yeah. but like just on a regular basis. Always. It's just, it's insane. And like when you, especially, and you don't really quite realize how pretty she is until you see like pictures of her young with no makeup on and mm. you're like, fuck. Yeah. That's just natural. She's stunning. What in the world? I know. Um, okay. So this is exciting. Tell me what I'm drinking. It looks okay. so good it looks so good guys it is pink with like light pink foam on top and there's a strawberry on the edge and mine's in a martini glass (laughs) it's so pretty so this is called the sun begins to fade because i i love that it's the entrance to my favorite song of hers i want to dance with somebody so i was like what's more sunsetty than a beautiful pink pillowy cloudy cocktail yeah um so this is coconut rum strawberry liqueur strawberry simple syrup coconut milk and then you top the whole thing off with sparkling rosé i love it i love it (laughs) very good that is delightful it's very good um it tastes like a cloudy sunset Mm -hmm. but not like like a like a cumulus cloudy sunset. Yeah. Like the big poofy Care Bear clouds mm-hmm. for sure. God, it is really nice. The, the so rosé nice. is <laughs> delicious. Uh, yeah, this is making me giddy. It's making me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's making me want to dance with somebody. Yes. I could drink a lot of this. And maybe I will. <laughs> I mean, you're going to have to <laughs> at some point. I mean, I'm sure you're going to talk a lot. I think you yes. wrote perhaps a chapter to a book tonight Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. this is a very famous story um before we jump into what i we know i do want to acknowledge that just a couple hours ago um former president trump's ex-wife died at 74 
his pre like the mother of the kids and the one who like accused him of rape and everything she just passed away today oh my god yeah i didn't know that i saw it on the news so i just wanted to acknowledge that wow. give me a little when i go back and listen to these when i'm 80 i'll remember like what day this happened yeah. that's wild no yeah. i did not see that because i was picking up my kids yeah <laughs> I, and i really was driving like all day today which is nice because i haven't been quite as busy at work so mm. i was like kind of excited to be like yeah, I'm driving out 70 forever. <laughs> um, okay, so okay. Whitney Houston. What do you know? She is a singer. She mm -hmm. can sing ballads, but she also did poppy songs that could like edge into the hip hop genre sometimes. Mm -hmm. She is stunning. Um, she, uh, like many divas, was abused by the industry mm -hmm. for a very long time. I don't know anything about her childhood. I know, obviously, um, she passed away. I remember where I was when she passed away. Really? Where were you? I was in the car, mm -hmm. and I heard it on the radio. Mm. Um, I remember, and was it in 2010? Uh, I can't remember what year it was. I can't, because I, I remember. Think it's 2012. Okay, there were two moments. I both yeah, remember 2012. when Michael Jackson died yes. and when Whitney Houston died. I have like two very vivid memories. And when Michael Jackson died, I was pregnant. Yeah. But yeah, and Whitney, um, I think it had to do with drugs. I can't quite remember because that was the same time that Demi Moore was having drug issues, but I think right. it was like an overdose. Mm -hmm style situation yeah um and just like a really sad ending to somebody who potentially had a lot of years left oh, yeah. to like sing at presidential inaugurations and I shit know. you know like in her later years or like make it into the rock and roll hall of fame although she might be already yeah. probably is like i feel like she could have i mean she was supposed to be the next aretha franklin and also have that staying power like yes i, I agree. also think that that was part of what kind of made things happen. I didn't put this in the story, but uh -huh. I think this is an interesting fact. Aretha Franklin was her godmother. Not oh. like officially, I don't think, but like she was very close to her even at a young age and she kind of took her under her wing. And at one point, Aretha Franklin told her, she goes, the baton is yours now. Like <gasps> you are the next me. And I think it was just, it was just so much pressure. That is a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I know she sang I Will Always Love You, mm -hmm. written by Dolly Parton, <laughs> but truly belted by Whitney. <laughs> I, you can't. No. There's, I also... <laughs> I hope no one ever tries to repeat that song. No. Uh, I also love that Dolly Parton was like, I love that she sang it. Like, <laughs> she made me a lot of money. <laughs> okay, so okay. tell me all about Whitney. Everybody buckle up. Buckle up. This is a long story. <laughs> and I am going to induct the Madonna Clause. Obviously, she did so much that it's hard to include every last detail. So I just want to put that out there right at the beginning. And her story jumps all over the place because, like a lot of musical artists, like things are happening all at the same time. So, again, have a little grace with cocktails. I mean, cocktails. Um, mm -hmm. Timeline and when albums were released, when they weren't, whatever. Um, and I do want to shout out uh, the 2018 Whitney documentary, which I watched, um, which had a lot of personal stories from people and a lot of footage. Like, it was very emotional. Uh, Wikipedia helped a lot. And, but mainly, I got my source, my main source was the podcast True Crime and Cocktails. Mm. They did a two and a half hour episode on her life. 
damn bananas. And you know who is the co-host? It's uh, the lady who plays Dina on Superstore. Oh, that's so funny. Because <laughs> I was like, this voice sounds familiar. That's great, because um, I couldn't find like a two-minute video about my girl. So. <laughs> that's why I was like, I can tackle a big subject, because I, I knew that yours was going to be a short story. <laughs> X is hard. X is fair. I could have done all the other X women from X-Men. Yep. Like, and still come in under this <laughs> story. Okay. Whitney. Oh, and also just a warning. There is talk of drug abuse, abuse, all sorts of stuff like that. It is, the story does get rough eventually. Okay. Whitney Elizabeth Houston was born on August 9th, 1963 in a middle income neighborhood in Newark, New Jersey. Her father was ex-army serviceman and Newark City Administrator John Russell Houston Jr. and her mother, Emily Sissy Houston. Uh, she was a well-respected Grammy award-winning gospel singer. Did you know that? Her mom? Her mom. Oh, so she was born yes. in the industry. She was born into okay. it. Sissy had so sung. So she's like a Miley Cyrus. Pretty much, yes. My godmother, Sally Parton. <laughs> yours is. Okay, Sissy had sung backup for people like Elvis, Aretha Franklin, which is why she knew her her entire life, and her first cousin, Dionne Warwick. Wowza. <laughs> this is a musical family. A family with some pipes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so Sissy had a son named Gary with her first husband, Freddie. And then she had another son with her second husband, John Houston, named Michael. And then, of course, they had Whitney, the baby of the family. Mm. When Whitney was still small, her family left Newark after the 1967 Newark riots. And they settled in East Orange, New Jersey. John was kind of struggling to find work for a little bit, so Sissy went back on the road with her singing career to support the family, which was nice for the Bills, but the kids described missing her a lot and frequently staying with other families throughout their childhood. So I don't know why they couldn't just stay home with the dad. I don't know if he was also maybe eventually got a job and was traveling for work. But I just wonder with the time period if like a yeah. woman was expected to care for the kids. Right. You know? Yeah. And so it's you so were if like going, a mom wasn't in the house, like you were going to the other moms in right. the neighborhood. Yeah. Because a lot crazy. of them were worth like ants and stuff. Right. Um, from a young age, Whitney was always getting into trouble. Uh, her brothers said that she would leave the house looking very put together. And by the time she got home at the end of the day, she was disheveled and covered in dirt mm -hmm. and <laughs> just an absolute mess after trying to keep up with the boys in her neighborhood. Mm. Her father even started to call her Nippy, uh, who, <laughs> who was a cartoon strip character who was like Whitney, always getting into trouble. The name stuck, and to this day, that is what everyone close to her calls her. Oh, like Bug. Yeah, Nippy. It's so cute. So her dad had his hands full, but there was no denying that Whitney was her mother's favorite, probably because she would openly say it all the time. And was she the only girl? <laughs> yeah, she was the only girl, and she... Yeah. I think her mom was just like, she will be the next me. And I think her mom also, like, you know how a lot of stage moms resent their daughters i don't think she i think she was like she will be greater than me and i want that for her mm. you know um so but, she was like i don't know like a good mom <laughs> <laughs> uh but she was not quite as popular at school whitney was bullied a lot oh, no. as a child kids would make fun of her for being too light-skinned they would break her glasses and they would wait for her after school to beat her up like, they would physically hurt her. Kids like, are terrible. They're awful. And it got so bad that her parents had to find a new school for her. 
So she went to Mount St. Dominic Academy, a Catholic girls' high school. But the Houstons were definitely not Catholic. (laughs) They were very active members of the New Hope Baptist Church, where Whitney started singing at the age of 11. Mm. And it was clear from the start that she was a star. Sissy saw her raw talent and would remind Whitney throughout the rest of her life that she was touched by God. Her voice was a direct gift from him. And that is something Whitney would repeat for years and years and years. Like people be like, why do you love singing? She's like, I, it's not that I love singing. She goes, I do, but I have to sing Mm. because this is what I was put on this earth to do by God. Whitney Houston was extremely religious. Like I'm enacting the gift that God gave me. Exactly. Um, when she was 12 years old, she told her mom that she was like, this is official. I want to pursue, uh, music as a career. So Sisty was like, okay, we'll do it. She starts giving her voice lessons. She would take her to the recording studio to show her how things work. She would take her to clubs so she could sing backup vocals with her for the various groups that Sissy did that for. Like, just like, okay, you want to do this? Come along with me. Here's and like internship. Here, yeah, it's, exactly. <laughs> it's like a musical internship. Um, and she even once performed at Carnegie Hall. Stop. When she was a teenager. And she was so good that, like, even as a backup singer, Sissy somehow got her to sing a solo at Carnegie Hall. As, like, a teenager. Yes. That's amazing. Uh, and the, she got a standing ovation, and the right person was in the crowd, and she got a modeling contract while she was still in high school. Well, she's very tall. She's tall. She's gorgeous. Um, and it's interesting because by the time she was 16, record producers were already trying to sign her because obviously they're in these clubs watching other people and kind of like trying to find the next big thing. But her mom knew the bit who knew the business well said, not yet. She's too young. She goes before she gets into a music career. She goes, she has to finish high school. That was sissy's big thing. And the modeling was something that like she could do on the side. You know, she was like, we're right next to New York. Like if she wants to go do photo shoots, like that's fine. You know, that's not as all consuming as a music career. Well, also a lot of those big studios would like sit, like we'd sign a contract and then sit on these young girls for years and just be like, Oh no, you're not ready. Mm -hmm. But then you're not free to do anything else you want to do. Exactly. That happened to Taylor Swift. She just like sat on Columbia for years, writing songs for other people. And they, she was like, no, I want to do songs. And they're like, no, (laughs) Not really, but so then when her contract was up, she signed with that independent record company who would let her do whatever the hell she wanted. There you go. I think they were called Big Machine or something. It's like a Tennessee record company. It's insane. Anyway, not the point, but like, yeah, they would misuse young girls and Sissy knew that. Yeah, and Sissy knew that. So she was like, nope, she's going to go to school, but she can model. Um, So as a teenager... Whitney appeared in Essence, Cosmo, Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, and <gasps> Seventeen magazine. <laughs> Wait, she was in Vogue before uh-huh. she was a professional singer. Uh-huh. All right. <laughs> That's like, calm down, Whitney. Um, <laughs> Sorry, you're a quadruple threat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and it was also nice because I think for the photo shoots, like, Whitney said, she goes, my mom was there for every single one of those photo shoots. I mean, that's the way to keep people safe. Exactly. But in the summer of 1980, her parents wanted her to get a job outside of modeling so she, you know, could get a little more, like, real-world experience and, like, also just, like, 
really like they were always trying to just like make sure that she wanted to take this step and then she was was well-rounded exactly work at a restaurant Mm -hmm. um so she became a counselor for a local youth program Mm -hmm. and it was here where she met the gail to her oprah oh yes robin crawford Mm. robin was whitney's best friend and eventually her roommate and eventually her, her executive assistant now People have very strong feelings about Robin, uh, especially a lot of the men in the documentary were like, I don't trust her. She's an evil con artist. Like she knew right from the start that Whitney was going to be big. So she just attached her to Whitney's coattail feathers, whatever the saying is. And they're like, like that girl, like only wanted to like be on her apple wagon, whatever it is. I'm getting all those phrases mixed up. None of that I think was it's a phrase. I've already finished my cocktail. Um, <laughs> Chug, chug, chug. But basically, they thought she was power hungry, which is funny because they met as teenagers. Yeah, <laughs> at a local community center. It makes no sense to think that like she's riding her coattail. <clears throat> like maybe if they met after she already had a number one album or whatever. Right. No, but uh, they met when uh, she was in high school. Like right. the biggest thing she had was like this. At this point, like small modeling career. Mm. Um, and even Sissy thought that Robin was a bad influence and she was like, that girl's trouble. (laughs) And one guy said in the documentary, he goes, and I could see that Robin was a lesbian right from the beginning. And I tried to warn Whitney to stay away, but she wouldn't listen to me. Why does that matter either way? (laughs) So this is the thing. Robin is in fact a lesbian. Okay. And rumors then would always just swirl around about her relationship with Whitney, kind of like it does with Oprah and Gail. Yeah. And I don't know if the rumors are true, Um, but there were other people who were like, no, like Whitney was bisexual, but there, and like she did have a physical relationship sometimes with Robin, but there wasn't space in the fucking eighties and nineties for her to be like, no, yeah, I'm just a bisexual artist. Right. And, the nineties specifically were so religious. Yeah. And like be like the LGBT community was just so looked down upon. Yeah. So I don't know what rumors are true, what aren't, but the guy was making it seem like her being a lesbian made her a bad person, <laughs> which really bugged me. Mm-hmm. Um so anyways, Whitney graduates high school in nineteen eighty one. Uh, but that may have come second to her getting on the cover of Seventeen magazine, making her one of the first women of color to be on the cover. No way! She's on the cover. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, and then finally, after she graduated, her parents allowed her to get some representation and start her music career. So she gets some managers, and she keeps doing gigs with her mom, and she appears on a few songs. She gets hired to do some jingles and appear in commercials, including one for Canada Dry Ginger Ale. (laughs) But then in 1983, a man named Clive Davis notices her, and he signs her for a bigger talent agency. Now, Clive Davis is famous for signing artists such as Bruce Springsteen, Barry Manilow, Aretha Franklin, Patti Smith, Alicia Keys, Carly Simon, Who? The Grateful Dead. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of these people. Among, like, so many others. And then one person said that he also eventually founded Bad Boy Records with Puff Daddy. Like, <laughs> you mean P. Diddy? This guy is the re- Sean Combs. <laughs> Do you mean Sean? <laughs> Do you mean this, Mr. Combs? This guy is the real fucking deal. 
He's okay. the real fucking deal. So he can like he can like read people's talent. Yes. He can read it. He Got saw it. her and he was like, she's gonna be big. And the photos of her signing her contract with him are so fucking cute because okay. she is she looks like a baby. Okay. And then he's baby there and me. he's like like this one guy was describing him and he goes he looks like a nice Jewish boy that grew up in Brooklyn uh, because that's what he was. <laughs> and it's like baby Whitney, like baby Whitney with a rattle, like, the whole thing. And like, I don't know if other people have other opinions, but like, I want to make it clear. Clive Davis is not a villain in this story, which is such a nice change of pace. That is nice. <laughs> Cause usually it's like, Oh, and then they, and then they with took MGM. advantage <laughs> of her, whatever. Um, so anyways, uh, she does some, you know, small but impactful stuff during this time period. And then on Valentine's Day, 1985, her debut album, simply titled Whitney Houston, releases. Sales were a bit slow to start, which concerned the record company. But Clive was like, I know what I'm doing. You have to be patient. And in fact, it took a year for the album to take off, which is wild. I had to be born first. Right. <laughs> Um, which was thanks to a lot of work on Whitney's part. So the album came off, people came out, people weren't listening and she was like, all right, well I am going to go around promoting the fuck out of this album. She is going on every like talk show and late night show that she can. She's performing for just like any show that would have her. Mm. And by 1986, the album was finally on the billboard 200 and it was the first debut solo album by a female to have three number one hit singles. I've just never heard of an album being around for a year and then having number one hits. It's That's weird. crazy. Um, I mean, I've heard of it happening to Kate Bush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Being out for 30 years. Uh, this album, of course, included the mega hit How Will I Know, which I also love that song. Ah, uh, great song. <laughs> Um, so she was nominated for four Grammys that year and she ended up winning best female pop vocal performance for the song saving all my love for you. She also performed at that Grammys and that performance earned her an Emmy in 1987. Oh man. So her career is really and truly off the ground. Honestly, for your first year out to get a Grammy and an Emmy. Bananas. So Her father decides to start the company Nippy Incorporated, which is so cute, to control this mega amount of money that was Uh suddenly coming in. Right. Um, Her second album, Whitney, was released in 1987, and this one did not take nearly as long to get to a number one on the Billboard 200. Right. This album had five top ten hits and four number ones. Yeah. Yeah, five top ten hits, four number ones, and featured some of the best Whitney songs, including I Want to Dance with Somebody. Mm -hmm. So because she had three number ones on the first record Mm -hmm. and four on this one, this made her the first woman to have four... Wait. Seven. Seven. Yes. (laughs) I can add, Katie. I'm so good. (laughs) Um, Okay, so it was the first woman to have four number one songs off of one album and the first artist to achieve seven consecutive number one hits surpassing Elvis, the Bee Gees, and the Beatles. Shit. <laughs> well, her pipes are just so good. They're so good. And, like, there's never a wrong note. No, absolutely not. She had three Grammy nominations for this album, went on a worldwide tour, was rumored to be dating Eddie Murphy, but apparently he stood her up one <laughs> night, and she bought her first mansion 
in New Jersey. This was a very exciting time. (laughs) (laughs) But with success comes shitty people. And there were a lot of people who were really starting to criticize Whitney. Only with success. I feel like I'm surrounded by (laughs) shitty people. (laughs) Even more so with success. Okay, okay, okay. No money, more problems. Exactly. People were saying that she was acting too white. At the Soul Train Music Awards, when her name was read for the award that she was nominated for, people started to boo her. And you, I watched the footage. You can hear it. It is so loud. And they are calling her Whitney. It is so, it's so upsetting. And I know that it's not a community thing that I will ever understand. Yeah. Because I, I, yeah. Like, I just can't understand that. But I, like, when we do women who are, uh, like, light-skinned or have a fairer complexion and they don't fit in anywhere, we've covered a lot of women like that. A it's like, lot. you you can't be white because you're not white, but mm-hmm. also, like, we don't accept you because, like, you're not one of us. Like, that's so sad. It puts her in just, like, the worst position ever. I mean, Al Sharpton stood outside of her hotel and protested with signs that said, Boycott Whitey Whitney. I just don't understand. That is terrible. It's like maybe she'd be excited because this black woman is getting all these incredible awards and actually becoming like a crossover artist. Right. Like, I don't know. Again, maybe these things are like much too nuanced for me to understand, but it was so devastating to her because she was interviewed about it and she goes, I don't know how to sing black and I don't know how to sing white. She goes, I just know how to sing. She goes, music isn't a color for me. And people just kept saying like, no, she's a sellout, like da, 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 da. And sell like, out from what? My Baptist church in New Jersey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so upsetting. So for her 1990 album, I'm your baby tonight, the producers tried to give it a more urban feel. And then she was criticized for trying to sound too black. And people said, well, now you're just trying too hard. It sounds artificial. It's like, what do you want me to do then? What do you want from me? She just couldn't get it right. Poor girl. And this is a weird thing. Apparently what turned things around for everyone was her singing the national anthem at the 1991 Super Bowl. (laughs) She did such a good job and did just... Like, I, they were talking about music measures, and, like, they're, like, the national anthem is a waltz, and we, because just, like, one, two, three, one, two, three, and they turned it into a four time. What is that called? Like, the four, four? Four, four. Yeah, they went from waltz to four, four time. Yeah, so it was, like, three, four, three to four, four. Yes, exactly. And so it was funny, because the guy was, like, yeah, when we gave the arrangement to the orchestra, they're, like, this is sacrilegious. This is disgusting. <laughs> like, the national anthem doesn't go this way. And... <laughs> So he was like kind of worried about it, the guy who arranged the whole thing. And then he was like, Whitney, like, are you okay with this? She goes, oh, I haven't even looked at the sheet music. She goes, I'm sure it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. She performed it for the first time ever when she performed it at the Super Bowl. That was a one take. I would be scared (laughs) if I knew the word. I know. I know. (laughs) Wait, which part's first? The bursting in air? The freedom? Dude, the crenelling ramparts is unreal. <laughs> and she did such a good job, but people were like, okay, she's black enough now. Like, oh, because said, she was fine yeah. on the Super Bowl. Yeah. Some people said they're like, she made every single 
person in America proud to be an American that night. Oh, good. No matter their race. And it was just, I don't know. I would love to know the stats on the prop bet on that song. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how many people in Vegas gave the over-under, and because it was a 4-4 instead of a 4-3, how many people bet wrong? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Planet Money. <laughs> do an episode on that, please. please do. Now, it may seem like kind of silly to mention this because it's one performance, but her version of the national anthem hit number 20 on the Billboard charts. Shut up. <laughs> and then after 9-11, it came back again and went to number six. And because it had this resurgence and made a ton of money again, Whitney donated all of the money that came from that song to the Red Cross to oh. help people who were suffering after yeah. the 9-11 attacks. I was going to say, you know, because after 9-11, yeah. we had to love all the versions yes, of the national did. anthem. Uh, except for Fergie's. Um, <laughs> not Fergie's. <laughs> I'm sorry, Fergie's. We that had to get bad. really into Lee Greenwood. <laughs> <laughs> and I would recommend listening to it. The Star Spangled Banner is a tough Hard. song to sing. It's fucking Hard. Hard and song. she i've never seen someone sing it so effortlessly mm. like i remember my grandfather always saying he goes god when bing crosby sings he goes it's like he's just talking mm. and it's like she is talking the national anthem like michael buble <laughs> yes <laughs> michael bubble sure <laughs> i do love michael buble um anyways but i think this song does actually like really showcase how unique and wonderful her voice is especially when you consider that it was a live performance and it was the first time she'd ever performed it. <laughs> like that shit was not pre-recorded i want everyone to know that when they see it I don't think so, at least. I, but then I thought I heard some, something that was pre-recorded. I don't know. Who knows? Sometimes, sometimes if it's uh, <laughs> so that you don't say anything political in the middle of it, sometimes yeah. they pre-record it. But it could have been the first time she sang it. They recorded it, and it was a one-take done. Yeah, maybe. Either way, first time she I sang it. I don't know. It. Anyways, so while her career is going very well, despite, you know, obviously those awful whitening criticisms, she had started a personal relationship with former new edition member Bobby Brown. Mm. Now, mm-hmm. I forgot to mention this and what uh-huh, I know about Whitney. Uh-huh. Now, at this time, Bobby was 20 years old. He had just won a Grammy, and he was very cocky. Uh, now, if you don't know New Edition, uh, they do the song, <laughs> Is My Prerogative. Mm-hmm. Okay, that song that Britney Spears also covered. Um when he's 20, he's already claiming to have major onstage sex appeal, and he claimed to have slept with so many women, it was hard to keep enough condoms on the tour bus. Sure it was. <laughs> he also made sure <laughs> to mention in the documentary that he could have had any woman he wanted. He said, well, at that time, the word was getting around about me. Women were talking. They were curious to see if the myths about me in the bedroom were true. I'm going to give you a warning. This man's ego knows no bounds. I'm going to put it out there. I hate this man. (laughs) Uh, I don't know that there's very many people who would be like, you know what? I love Bobby Brown. Hot take. I (laughs) love him. (laughs) What are you talking about? He's been so good for so long. (laughs) He's my whole past. What? Um, Mary Kill, <laughs> Bobby Brown, absolutely Mary, absolutely Mary. <laughs> um, 
Whitney was very into him immediately, and they started to kind of see each other, even though he also claims that he wants to make it very clear. He goes, I was seeing Janet Jackson at the time, which she denied. He goes, yeah, I think he, like, bought me, like, a white Corvette and put a bunch of teddy bears in it, and I sent it back. Like, he's a lunatic. He's a real Kanye West hanging yes. around here. <laughs> uh, Wikipedia describes Whitney and Bobby as courting during this time period. I'm not sure how to describe it because he was definitely sleeping with lots of women. And I don't think that he was all in on the relationship, but unfortunately Whitney was by 1992. The two were engaged on the condition that once they were married, he's got to stop sleeping with other women. (laughs) And she said, look, just get it out of your system which he took to mean going on a month-long bachelor party around the world on a private jet. Hate him. (laughs) I couldn't even say all the quotes that he had about this. It was outrageous. And then before their marriage, after this month-long fuck fest, I'm just going to call it that, he made one last visit to his ex, Kim Ward, who he already had one child with, just to tell her in person that he's marrying Whitney and it's really over this time. But somehow she ends up pregnant after this. I just, (laughs) you cannot change somebody overnight. A wedding ring does not change somebody. No, it does not. So with that, Whitney and Bobby were married on July 18th, 1992. She was 28. Bobby was 23. Four months after their wedding, Kim gave birth to their son, Bobby Jr. And seven months after their wedding, Whitney gave birth to their daughter, Bobby Christina Brown. Two kids within a few months of each other, both named after this cheating, narcissistic asshole. He named them both Bobby. Can he, like, (laughs) hypnotize people? Like, what is he doing? I, I don't know. That's upsetting. And also, like, how is he not giving all these people, like, STDs? Who who the fuck knows? I don't know. Maybe it's because of all those condoms filling his tour bus. Maybe they all actually have STDs. I don't know. So, and within four months of giving birth, four months later, and she, Whitney did not have an easy birth. She had to have an emergency C-section. It was really painful. Not good. Um, But within four months, she is back on tour and promoting a movie. Because in 1991, she made The Bodyguard with Kevin Costner. Sure did. (laughs) The movie itself was nominated for two Oscars, even if some people were kind of critical of Whitney in the role. Uh, She got a Razzie for her performance. (laughs) But this movie would, I mean, make her a legend in both her, like, on-screen debut. Like, people loved this movie. Yeah. (laughs) It was a really big deal. And it gave her one of her most popular songs, a song so popular, people forgot that Dolly Parton even wrote it. <laughs> the song, I Will Always Love You, remains one of the most, one of the best-selling singles of all time. There was an English woman who spent five days in jail for refusing to stop playing the song. <laughs> <laughs> Her neighbors called the police, uh, said that she was causing them psychological torture because she would just repeat it. And not to annoy them just because she loved it so much. 
Well, I mean, <laughs> the only way I can describe it is the, that note on I, like mm-hmm. the end I that you hold out. Mm-hmm. Like Do- when Dolly Parton sings it, she hits the top of that note. Mm-hmm. And Whitney Houston scoops the bottom of it, I feel like, in a really deep, right there. deep memorable way. Because you know how she like fluctuates right yeah. in the middle? Mm-hmm. It's like the eye. <laughs> and you're like, what the hell just happened it's to perfect. my ears? It's insane. She's great. Um, another weird fun fact. Uh, Saddam Hussein had an Arabic version recorded for his political campaign. Whitney Houston recorded it, or he had no, somebody. No, no, no. He had someone record like Whitney's version. I was so like, say, did like she like Justin dude. Bieber with Despacito no. like learn a language? <laughs> Let me tell you, the footage of Saddam Hussein campaigning with "I Will Always Love You" playing in the background <laughs> is the most mind-boggling thing I've seen in my life. Get on your feet <laughs> and make me love you. Um, so. The song was big, but the movie was also really big deal because, especially for Whitney, because the studio did not want her for the role. Mm. But Kevin Costner fought for her <laughs> every step of the way. And they really weren't sure how people were going to react to an interracial leading couple. I mean, this was a really big deal. When the movie premiered in South Africa, People went nuts in the audience because they had not seen anything like that. That was so exciting because they're still in the midst of apartheid. Yeah. Like, this was a huge deal. And he said in an interview, people didn't understand why I wanted her to be in the movie so bad. But I just thought she is the cutest, most beautiful girl who can also sing. Like, why, why wouldn't I cast yeah. her? She's perfect. Like... And he was just like, I just don't understand why, like, people were so shocked that, like, a black woman could take on this role. Mm. Like, Kevin Costner is a gem in this story. He loved Whitney Houston so much. Oh, my God. Thumbs up to Kevin Costner. (laughs) Kudos to you, buddy. Hot take. We like Kevin Costner. (laughs) Since the movie was released in 92, it was obviously filming in 91 before she and Bobby got married. Uh, And apparently he demanded to be on set to make sure she didn't fall in love with Kevin Costner. When it's like, (laughs) you were saying that you were dating Janet Jackson the whole time, you asshole. (laughs) What are you even talking about? When he he was like, I'm coming on set. When he goes, no, you're not. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) But unfortunately, another thing did happen during the filming of this movie. Whitney had her first miscarriage. And to make matters worse, when Bobby did show up, to set to comfort her he reportedly said i'm no medical doctor but you don't seem as upset as you should be which i think she was like dude i have to keep it i think he wanted her to just like quit the movie and like not do it be like no you're grieving like you should quit the movie and she's like i have to be a professional this is my first movie i can't just quit in the middle of we it. don't just like go into mourning for a year anymore no like, we don't do that yeah she's like i'm trying to be a professional like i would love to do more movies and if i really fuck up this one that kevin costner put his neck out on the line for me for mm-hmm. she goes I can- i'm not gonna do that kevin costner from the parent trap <laughs> what the parent trap like, wasn't he, he wasn't in that wasn't he in the second one no isn't he the dad in the second one what are you talking about Lindsay second Lohan. no that was uh dennis quaid oh. <laughs> That's it's Ali, a classic. He's in Waterworld. Class- Ever seen it? 
I fucking love. Wait, which ones in Waterworld? Kevin Costner. They look exactly the same. You're a psychopath. Kevin Costner and Dennis Quaid. Face blindness. I do. (laughs) They look exactly the same to me. I would say they're the same type of leading man, like rugged all American. Twister. I don't know. I've never seen that movie. I've been to the Disney World experience. I'm going to find out. Do it. <laughs> All right. Keep telling. Gonna... You go. You go. <laughs> oh, you predict. Okay. All right. I'm going to. I think I think it was Kevin Costner. Okay. Twister cast. <laughs> Bill Paxton. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> A different white guy with brown hair. We are on. Okay. Woo. All right. <laughs> Anyways. Everyone's um, yelling out there. <laughs> everyone's screaming. Right now. That was Bill Paxton. Um, but I would like you to know on another fucked up note, since then, Bobby has always maintained that Whitney was lying about this miscarriage. I hate him. Me too. Some people signal the bodyguard as the moment their relationship truly changed because again, she was filming it before they got married. So they didn't know what a fucking hit it was until after they were married. Uh, because the success of the movie and especially the song made it so that they would never be on the same level of fame ever again. Cause before that it's like, okay, we're both artists. We both have Grammys. Like we're equal. She's on top now. And now it is like, there's no going back. Mm-hmm. And he could not handle that. And after this, he really started to act out. Uh, he starts to really publicly cheat on her. He gets tangled up in lawsuits over sexually harassing her employees. Just, He gets into car accidents, like anything to get attention away from Whitney and onto him. He is like a child throwing a tantrum. It's so upsetting. But besides Bobby, after the bodyguard released, things were going great for Whitney. Uh, I Will Always Love You is making history. Whitney wins a gazillion awards. Then she does the film Waiting to Exhale in 95. Then The Preacher's Wife in 96, which apparently the soundtrack to that film is the best-selling gospel album of all time. (laughs) And then in 1997, Whitney starred as the fairy godmother in the best version of Cinderella, in my personal opinion. Brandy! Alongside Brandy, (laughs) or as she is known in my heart, empty the Oh, to the <laughs> eat to the Moesha. I love that show so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that boy is mine. Love that song. Okay, go ahead. Um, also, I just want to note that apparently she was a producer on this movie, and she would go on to be a producer on both the Princess Diaries movies and the Cheetah Girls movies. She had a whole production company that I didn't know about. I didn't know she produced the Princess Diaries movies. No, I didn't either until I heard in this documentary. I was like, that's crazy. With Julie Andrews? Yes. So her production company was initially called Houston Productions. But then to make Bobby feel better, she changed it to Brown House Productions. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a victim blamer, but she needs to check herself. Like, this guy is not worth your time. He's publicly cheating on you all over the place. That's embarrassing. And you're bending over backwards to make sure his feelings aren't hurt. And you by make your so much more money than him. You own him. It's you very upsetting. own him. Yeah. Oh, it's very upsetting. 
Um, also, another fun fact, in 1994, she became the first black artist to perform in South Africa after apartheid ended. And Amazing. her and Nelson Mandela were like very good friends. They're best friends, of yeah. course. Ugh. In 1998, she released her first studio album in eight years called Your Love Is My Love. And then, of course, in that same year, she did a duet with Mariah Carey for the film Prince, Prince in of Egypt. Egypt. <laughs> when you believe. I love that song. Many nights we pray. Should we just sing the ah, whole thing? I, that soundtrack. No Anyone. <laughs> and then just Aaron walking out of Egypt. I'm not going to lie. I have a couple songs from that soundtrack on my running playlist because it gets you going i mean Mud. when they're Jaw. <laughs> water when they're going across that red sea Ooh. and that whale comes Ooh, up and like so good. turns a little are there out. whales in the red sea we don't know absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> there, are no, there are no whales okay. in the red sea but yes that's that song is so, and What's better than Mar- Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston together? What's better than that? I don't know. Who would we pair today? It's got to be Ariana Grande and Christina Aguilera. And that doesn't mm. even touch it. Yeah. Doesn't even t- that That would be my, or like Demi Lovato. She's up there with the mm. big voice. Big cultures. Um, but yeah, no, there's, I don't think there's, that <sighs> might be the best diva packed song of all time. Yeah, the best. So, by the year 2000, she is continuing her winning streak with just countless awards. The Bodyguard soundtrack was named the Album of the Century, which I disagree with, but that's all right. That's big talk. That's a big <laughs> statement. Um, it seems like, <laughs> like just in America or like of all time. It's like the century. Best I don't know. Soundtrack. Did they take into account? The chipmunk movie that I like so much. (laughs) (laughs) Because that soundtrack is (laughs) popping. What is that fucking snake song that's so fucked up? Get lucky. Get lucky. (laughs) I could sing you those songs for the rest of my life. That song is the most disturbing thing I've ever seen Mm. in a child's movie. It's a special special section of hell that I live in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It seemed like nothing could stop the fame train. That was Whitney Houston. But the new millennia started to bring some new drama into her life. Whitney had always been seen as the good girl of the music scene. But by 1999 and 2000, her behavior started to change. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. She was often hours late for interviews, photo shoots, rehearsals. She canceled concerts and talk um, talk show appearances at the last minute. And there were reports of erratic behavior when she did deign to show up. She's also losing a crazy amount of weight with people commenting that her bones are suddenly protruding from her frame. And in January 2000, she was caught with marijuana at an airport. The the charges were later dropped. And two months after her, you know, marijuana situation, she was supposed to perform at her manager, Clive Davis's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony. And she just didn't show up. That's really fucked up. But this is a common mm-hmm. thing that happens. Yeah. Then shortly after that, she was fired from her upcoming performance at the Oscars. The director said that she was jittery and all over the place. And she was supposed to sing Over the Rainbow. But every time they would like cue the music and start, she would sing a different song every time. 
he was like, I don't know what he's like. I literally can't get through to her. I can't have She's, you on live TV. Yeah. So he fired her and people are starting to get concerned that Whitney has been using drugs with her husband, Bobby Brown. And then the rumors are kind of confirmed when her best friend and executive assistant, the girl who had been by her side from day one, Robin Crawford, resigns from her position as Whitney's executive assistant in May 2000, saying that she couldn't work for Whitney anymore because Whitney refused to get treatment for her drug dependency. Now, for the public, this was a total shock. Because Whitney didn't seem like the person who would ever do drugs. They're like, she grew up in the church. She grew up in a stable household when, like, so many people grew up from, like, fucked up childhood. They're like, no, she didn't have that. And the reason they thought that she was such a good girl was because it was a carefully curated image. Apparently, people didn't know that her parents weren't actually together for all these years because they presented as a happy family that provided Whitney with a perfect, stable home when she was a kid. But that wasn't true. We mentioned before that her mom was gone a lot on tour when she was a kid, and they stayed with a lot of other families. And unfortunately, the kids suffered some sexual abuse during this time from one of their aunts. Whitney didn't tell anyone until much later in life because like a lot of kids, like she thought it was her fault. She's like, what did I do to attract this? Like, and she just always felt like it was her fault. Then there was also the fact that her parents had actually been split up for a long time because Sissy cheated on her husband with the pastor of their church. <gasps> Ooh, this was not the perfect family life that they were presenting. Then came the drugs. People thought that this happened because of her marriage to Bobby Brown. This was going on much before that. Really? Whitney started smoking pot when she was a teenager, like a lot of kids, but then had moved on to harder drugs when her own brother started teaching her how to freebase cocaine when she was a teenager. Okay, so she's been kind of putting on a front mm -hmm. and being able to play it cool for mm -hmm. a long time. A long but that time. shit catches up with you. Yeah. The success of her career obviously made drugs more affordable, more available, and her brother was kind of her guy who would, was able to get her drugs whenever she wanted. And apparently this behavior was concerning to Robin as early as the 80s. She describes parties at Whitney's house saying that most people could do drugs and then stop when they were feeling good. But she said Whitney couldn't stop. She goes, she wouldn't stop until all the drugs in the house were gone. Like if there, even if she was like almost incapacitated, if there was more to do, she would fucking do it. Mm. I mean, unbeknownst to many people, she even overdosed on, on cocaine during the filming of The Preacher's Wife. That was years before all this came out. Like, she was not doing okay. Robin said that it was often a response to the immense amount of pressure that her career and her personal life was having on her. She felt pressured to always be on tour, always be working, always making money, because she employed a lot of people. And a lot of people were taking more than she thought. She soon found out that Nippy Incorporated, her company that was set up to protect her money, was paying for basically everyone in her family to live the high life. It paid for their houses, their cars, their personal bills, all sorts of shit. So her money is mm -hmm. paying for them to exist. Mm -hmm. Even Bobby Brown's mother 
would send all of her personal bills and expenses to Nippy Incorporated. It's very upsetting. That's theft. Yeah. So what was once kind of like a method of like self-preservation, escape, like I'm just having a good time. Like she just like loved the way cocaine made her feel. Um, just, just a way to kind of escape all the craziness soon became a dark spiral. And it was escaping more than just like being on tours crazy. I have to keep up with the energy. It was like. I cannot deal with all of this. It's well, too much. Pressure. Everybody in your personal life has just betrayed you. Mm -hmm. Whitney later explained that after her daughter was born, things started to get worse. She would spend days just staying up all hours of the night doing drugs with Bobby and basically doing nothing else. They were spending so much money on drugs that during the 90s, apparently Bobby was abducted by a street gang because they owed this gang $25,000 for the drugs that they had been purchasing. Whitney reportedly paid $400,000 to get him back. Was any of this behavior like, I'm doing this to get Bobby to pay attention to me instead of other women? Was any of it like, I need to keep up with him? Actually, no. No, it's just, um, this is just, like, her lifestyle. Bobby okay. was actually apparently a notorious lightweight. <laughs> oh. And I think that also made him mad because I also wonder if he was trying to do it more to keep up with her. And then it everything just kind of spiraled because people said that Whitney could do a lot more than Bobby. Hmm. Um, now, I said earlier that Robin resigned because of Whitney's drug use. But that was only part of it. She also could not stand Bobby Brown any longer. Famesies. The two had a really volatile relationship and would often get into screaming matches and physical altercations. And one of the reasons Bobby hated her may have been because of how close he and she and Whitney were. And he always saw Robin as a threat to their relationship. Oh, yeah. So Robin gave Whitney an ultimatum. She goes, it's me or Bobby. I can't. I can't do this anymore. And Whitney chose Bobby. I don't know if Robin was always in the right. There is probably something to be said for like, you know, writing on Whitney's coattails, whatever the fuck people said. But I do think that she was one of the earliest people trying to help. And did Robin do drugs too? Like, absolutely. But she was one of the first people who's like, we need to do something about this. Well, this is not okay. I drink a lot, but I also help my friends that have alcoholism. Right. Like you can say, like you're in, you're in a type of way right mm -hmm. now. Like, let's go out and like not have drinks tonight. Exactly. Like, there's a big difference, a huge difference between like being an addict mm -hmm. and like being like a casual consumer who can like spot an addict and try to help. Yeah. Robin leaving her circle was a really big trigger for Whitney and she felt even more alone. So she started doing even more drugs. Mm. I mean, she was totally falling apart. The only other person it seemed who tried to help during this time was a bodyguard of hers. He wrote up a lengthy report about Whitney's drug abuse. And he also mentioned in the report, he goes, I think you should know too, that everyone around her is doing drugs too. He goes, the bodyguards that are supposedly here to protect her are fucked up all the time. The hairdresser on drugs, the nanny who's here taking care of Bobby Christina on drugs. He goes, this is not 
a safe environment. No one here is fit to take care of Whitney, let alone Bobby Christina. That poor little girl was there for all of this because Whitney would take her on tour with her because she goes, well, I know what happened to me when I was left home alone. Right. So like, I'm not going to leave my daughter, but then it's like, yeah, but you're also not taking care of her here. Right. This is a separate dangerous separate dangerous situation. So he wrote this report. It went to Whitney's parents and her lawyers. And the result of it was that that bodyguard was fired. When people ask why no one did anything, the answer is always money. The people who could have stepped in and helped her friends, her family, were all on her payroll. Apparently, there were some times where she would say, I'm too tired. I don't want to go on tour. I need a break. They would say, well, Whitney, you don't have enough money left to keep up with your lifestyle. So if you don't go on tour, you and your daughter will be out on the streets. Which wasn't true at all. Whitney had tons of money. It was just that all these people were stealing it and they wanted to keep stealing it. They wanted her to not only pay for herself and her daughter, but also them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. After one of the many interventions that people staged for her, she went to her dad and he goes, it's okay if you don't go to rehab. This is the type of people that are surrounding Whitney. And it sucks because I think it's like, Oh, no, you just have to surround yourself with your friends and your family and you'll be okay. But, like, these are the people that were taking advantage of her the most because they had the most to gain. Then in 2002, she gave her famous interview to Diane Sawyer. When asked about her drug use, she had the famous quote, First of all, let's get one thing straight. Crack is cheap. I make too much money to ever smoke crack. Let's get that straight, okay? We don't do crack. We don't do that. Crack is whack. This interview was kind of a mess. But it was also the first time that she kind of publicly admitted her issues with substance abuse. Yeah. But I remember that as being... I feel like that interview was also the way it was portrayed as like, you're wealthy. Like she was almost saying, it I'm not very part, classist. I'm not a part of the poor community that does crack. Yeah. It felt very elitist, very classist, very like, I'm too good for this. Yeah. Like, you assume I yeah. do crack because of X, Y, Z, but you don't know anything about drugs because I have more money than that, which is like, okay. Yeah. The whole interview was very upsetting. Yeah. But Diane Sawyer said that she'll never forget the last thing that Whitney said to her, which was, have you ever heard the sound of 10,000 people disappointed in you? And it is kind of a haunting statement because, like, that's a very unique feeling. No, I have never heard the sound of 10,000 people who paid upwards of $100 to come to see me disappointed in the show. That must be a really shitty feeling. That sucks. Clive Davis tried to help her. He even offered his home in the Hamptons as a kind of, like, rehab center that's, like, not as much pressure as a rehab center. But Whitney just took her brother with her, and they spent the entire time during doing more drugs instead of getting off of them. Things are getting worse. She's getting more isolated. And then, just to add a bit more bullshit to all of this, Whitney was suddenly in the middle of a huge lawsuit. In August 2001, Whitney Houston signed one of the biggest record deals in music history with Arista Records. 
she renewed her contract for a hundred million dollars to release six new albums and she would also earn royalties on top of that she was called in the press the hundred million dollar woman because this was insane that was an insane amount of money yeah and then in 2002 she was sued by her father and this man named kevin skinner kevin was the president of her father's separate company john houston enterprises and her father claimed that he wasn't compensated for helping negotiate that $100 million deal. He wasn't getting his recognition. So he sued her for that exact amount, $100 million, his own daughter. Even though he's been living off her money for all these years. Well, so the suit was eventually dismissed in 2004. But Whitney's father died in 2003 before things were settled. And this lawsuit actually came about because... Before, like right around the time of this $100 million deal, Whitney found out that her father was straight up stealing money from her. So she cut him off. Mm. And that's why he sued his daughter. There's this disgusting interview with him where he is like, I just want to be respected. He's like, this is so unfair. And like, he is like playing this victim. And it's like, you have been stealing from your own daughter for years you piece of shit yeah and we're just now getting over things like the britney spears situation this is 20 years ago Mm -hmm. she did not go to his deathbed or his funeral and i do not blame her it's also not surprising that whitney and bobby's relationship was getting more and more volatile Bobby would fly into violent rages, smash the windows of her car, break things in her house, cut out photos, like cut her out of photos in the house. Meanwhile, he's getting arrested for multiple DUIs. He's arrested for assault after he and another man got into a fight at Disney World. He pees on a cop car at some point. Like he is going bananas. And then in 2003, he is charged with battery after he hits Whitney in the face. Mm Mm-hmm. And it goes without saying that he's also cheating on her. Right. Which he said he only did because he or she cheated on him first. He goes, I want to make that clear. There's no evidence of her ever cheating on him. And first, he's been cheating yeah, on her since they, were years. since they were dating. God. She cheated on me first. When did you start counting? I'm confused. And of course, he, anytime he talks about Whitney, he goes, well, she's the crazy one. Like, she's nuts. Like, she's a drug addict. Like, it's really bad i mean there's just no getting around the fact that bobby was extremely jealous of her career and how successful he was she was i mean robin crawford once stated she goes bobby brought her down because he wanted to be up and he couldn't be because he didn't have the fucking talent and let's be clear about that in one story new edition was reuniting for a tour bobby said yeah they begged me to come back (laughs) And when Whitney surprised him on tour, he screamed at her and told her that this was his thing and she needed to leave. And then he spit in her face and threw a glass at her down the hotel hallway. When she came to see her husband on yeah, tour. Yeah, on tour. Oh. Because she, I think she was like, well, I know how lonely I am on tour. So like, I'm going to go visit him because I miss him. No, he was probably had somebody else in his bed. Mm-hmm. So what was the next step for this couple? Was it counseling? Was it rehab? No. It was reality TV. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Being Bobby Brown debuted on Bravo in 2005. This was a reality show, obviously focused on Bobby Brown, but secretly focused on Whitney Houston. (laughs) The first episode featured the couple being reunited after Bobby was released from jail. The show ran for 10 episodes, and it is remembered as one of the more upsetting reality tv it shows is a disturbing show which meant of course that it was one of their most popular shows <laughs> that they've ever produced <laughs> it also gave us the phrase hell to the no <laughs> so if you're wondering where that came from it was whitney houston we also did get a fantastic moment where bobby tried to criticize his 10 year old daughter's weight he looked at her and said i think you're getting a double chin which Whitney immediately shot down. She goes, do not talk to her that way. She is not going to be concerned about that kind of shit the way that I am. Like, absolutely not. It was only canceled, this show, after Whitney refused to do another season. Which is funny, because it's obviously called Being Bobby Brown. Mm -hmm. But Bobby Brown doesn't exist without Whitney. Yeah. Let's be clear. Nobody wants to watch Bobby Brown on TV. Do nothing. Like, (laughs) surprise, I live. (sighs) Bobby and Whitney finally divorced in 2007, and Whitney was awarded sole custody of their daughter. After the divorce, Clive Davis got back together with Whitney and said, I think it's time for a comeback. Because once she split from him, got sole custody, she was ready to get sober, get clean for herself. Which is something that a lot of people say. It's like when you are getting clean or sober or whatever, like it's nice to have like people who are like, I want to be there for them. I want to do this for them. But ultimately you have to do it for yourself. Mm -hmm. There's, you just have to. Right. Like, so she is looking to make a comeback. She spends like seven to nine months, I think it was in rehab And she makes a new album called I Look to You, which is released in 2009. She starts performing again, having regained her vocal strength, which has been just so severely affected by the heavy substance abuse. And people are writing, Whitney is back. So then, before she's truly done her full recovery, people are pushing her to go on tour. Hmm. And even though her voice was getting a bit stronger, her body was ravaged. And after just a few shows, her voice is giving out. Like, seeing videos of her performance on this tour is is very sad. And it's like mid-song, right? It's like struggling. Mm -hmm. I mean, during this time period, a plastic surgeon wouldn't even give her a facelift because he said her liver and heart are not strong enough to undergo surgery. Like, she was still not well enough, which means she definitely wasn't ready to go back on tour. Yeah, let's, like, let her, like, have a break for a couple years. Yeah. So she gets pushed on the tour. She's getting weaker. She starts canceling shows. And even worse than just canceling the shows, when people come, they're walking out of their performance. I was watching interviews with people, and they go, I paid $160 to be here. And back in the 2000s, like, that's a lot of fucking oh, money. Yeah. It's a ton of money. Like, even if it's just 10, tw- you know, 12 years ago, that's a lot. And people were like, I pay all this money to be here. And then, like, it's not that, like, oh, she doesn't sound like the record. She doesn't sound okay at all. Like, it's sad. It's very sad. And by May 2011, she was back in rehab for drug and alcohol abuse. 
Later that year, she started production on a remake of her favorite movie of all time, the 1976 film Sparkle. This is a movie that she remembers when she was a kid. She would watch over and over and over again in the time where you had to go to the movies if you wanted to watch a movie over and over and over again. (laughs) Whitney had bought the rights to the movie years before, but production was delayed because she had picked Aaliyah to star in it. And then Aaliyah died. And before filming, she, of course, tragically died in a plane crash. Um, So on this go around, Jordan Sparks was set to play the main character and Whitney played her mother. This was such an exciting time. People said in the beginning, like she was still like not doing quite all right. And she was a little rough. But then she goes, once people said once she had this purpose of finishing this movie, everything changed. And they're like, she had her old spark. She, it didn't seem like she was using anymore. It was like, she was so clear and present. And they said it was just wonderful. Like this movie experience was so great, but then the movie wrapped and she didn't have anything to work on again. Like at one point she was like, all right, on to the next project. Like, I think we should do a remake of the David Bathsheba story. I play Bathsheba. Mel Gibson plays David. And we were like, I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> but <laughs> Get Dennis Quaid in here. Yeah. Please. I mean, Kevin Costner. Get-, <laughs> get any of those men. Bill Pullman on the horn. It was Bill Paxton. Paxton. To Bill Pullman. Damn it. <laughs> that's another white guy with brown Fuck. hair. Fuck. No, I have no idea what Bill Paxton looks like. <laughs> I was definitely picturing Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman's the one from the movie you haven't seen. Yes. So. (laughs) Um, So then after the movie wraps, she starts to spiral a bit again, and Whitney would not see the film released. Mm. February 9th, 2012, she arrives in L.A. to attend a lot of pre-Grammy events with her old friends, Clive Davis, Brandy Norwood, She arrived a week before the Grammys and was reportedly seen drinking at nightclubs, doing headstands by the pool, and celebrating her boyfriend's birthday, which apparently that boyfriend was none other than Brandy's brother, Ray J. All right. So... I I don't know what to... He's a little young. (laughs) Yeah, he's very young. I don't know if they were actually dating or just hooking up or if nothing was happening. It's very unclear, um, but it's two bananas not to mention. Um, so she's partying. She's being very public. People are getting concerned again. And then on February 11th, 2012, Whitney's assistant left the hotel suite to pick up a package for her. She returned at 3.35 p.m. to find Whitney face down in the bathtub. She tried to administer CPR while the hotel called 911. The paramedics arrived very quickly, but she was pronounced dead at 3.55 p.m., just 20 minutes. She was 48 years old. The first autopsy report listed her death as accidental drowning with heart disease and cocaine listing as, uh, listed as contributing factors. There was also marijuana and other pills, including Xanax, found in her system. The news traveled quickly, and everyone was devastated. Her daughter, Bobby Christina, was so distraught that she had to be hospitalized. So, because this is pre-Grammys week, everyone in the music business is in town. 
And the night that she died, Clive Davis was hosting a party for the Grammys that she was supposed to attend. At this party, he said, by now you have all learned of the unspeakably tragic news of our beloved Whitney's passing. I don't have to mask my emotion in front of a room full of so many dear friends. I am personally devastated by the loss of someone who has meant so much to me for so many years. Whitney was so full of life. She was so looking forward to tonight, even though she wasn't scheduled to perform. Okay, so I missed that earlier. She was not scheduled to perform. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whitney was a beautiful person and a talent beyond compare. She graced the stage with her regal presence and gave so many memorable performances here over the years. Simply put, Whitney would have wanted the music to go on and her family asked that we carry on. Tony Bennett also said a few words that night. He recalled a moment when he first saw Whitney and he said, when I first heard her, I called Clive Davis and said, you finally found the greatest singer I have ever heard in my life. Oh, which is chilling. LL Cool J honored her at the Grammys and Jennifer Hudson sang, I will always love you. Her memorial service was held on February 18th, 2012 at the New Hope Baptist Church in Newark, New Jersey. The service was scheduled for two hours, but lasted four. People like Stevie Wonder and Alicia Keys performed, and Kevin Costner gave a eulogy, which is so sweet. Dennis Quaid? Yeah, Dennis Quaid. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the tragedy for the Houston family did not end there. Bobby Christina was not doing great after the death Mm -hmm. of her mother, and really even before. She did not grow up in the best household. She had wanted to start her own singing career, which is so sad because in an interview, she's like, yeah, I'll do the singing thing, just like my mom. It's like, Whitney would have never called it the singing thing. Like, but it was not happening as naturally for her as it did for her mother. And then when a Whitney Houston biopic was announced, she publicly stated that she wanted to play her mother. Mm. She goes, I think it's right. I'm her daughter. Who better to play her? And Angela Bassett, who was making the film, let her audition, but decided to pass on Bobby Christina. Oh. Because she said she was like, this is a very serious role. And she goes, she's not an actress. She's not even really 100% a singer. You know? Like, I need someone who is going to really. Yeah. I mean, you have to have somebody who can sing and act. Yeah. That's just all there is to it. Yeah. And uh, it was just like really upsetting to Bobby Christina. And then she publicly called Angela Bassett a bitch for not casting her. Like she was really acting out. And, you know, she's really upset. And it was just not good. Then just three years after Whitney died, Bobby Christina passed away. Yeah, I remember that too. On January 31st, 2015, she was found in her home face down in the bathtub, just like Whitney, with marijuana, alcohol, and prescription anxiety medications found in her system. She was still alive when they found her and was rushed to a hospital and put in a medically induced coma but died months later on July 26, 2015, at the age of 22. Mm. There are a lot of rumors and theories that people have about Whitney's death. Uh, Bobby Brown claims that this man named Nick Gordon was responsible for both deaths. Um, 
he has a really weird story. Like he was kind of a not officially adopted by Whitney and Bobby when he was twelve, and then eventually became uh, Bobby Christina's fiance. And they, it was rumored that they got married, but they actually didn't get married, which was very good because she was the sole inheritor of Whitney's $115 million estate. Yep. And I'm very glad that none of it went to Nick Gordon. <laughs> it's some kind of weird legal thing. Um, but yeah, Bobby said that like, well, he provided both of the girls with the cocaine that killed them and it's his fault. Oh, and, come on, Bobby Brown. And then of course there are people that blame Bobby Brown himself for the death of Whitney, which again, we talked about like Bobby was fucked up, but like he couldn't hold his shit and she had been doing it long before she met him. Yeah. Um, did he push her over the edge with his personal actions? Probably. Uh, but they weren't even together at the time of her death. Um, and then there's a guy named Raffles who claims that he was the found, one that found Whitney in the hotel room. But instead of calling the cops, he just took some of her clothes and some of the evidence of like the cocaine and drug use. This guy Raffles could have his own episode because he, if we did men, because he was a con artist who tried to scam many celebrities. Uh, but one of the worst things that this guy did, and I, he did a lot of shitty things, was that he went to Whitney Houston's funeral. Okay. Claiming that they had been great friends, which I don't think they were. <laughs> and he secretly took a picture of her in her casket, dead, and sold it to tabloids for $500,000. That is so disrespectful. Yeah. I hate raffles. And I also don't believe that he was there. And it's also like, are you really bragging about going to this funeral or like to this dead woman's hotel room before anybody knows and and taking her clothes? That's kind of illegal. What? Yeah. It's easy to get wrapped up in the sadness of Whitney's story, but there was really so much good to come out of her life in music. She inspired so many people over the years and obviously broke so many records in the music industry. She crossed so many barriers of genre and people. It's insane. And she also gave to countless charities and tried to help as many people as she could during her career. I There's like a whole section on just all of the good that she did with her money and her life right, that just I like her impact. didn't even know where to put it. Right. <laughs> and for all that and so much more... I can say for certainty that we will always love her. Mm. And that's the story of Whitney Houston. Whitney. What a good story. I mean, you know, it's an expected story. Mm. Like, I knew the end of it. I was around for that. But, you know, it's sad to hear it from the inside. Mm -hmm. Such, like, a talented, amazing, beautiful woman just, like, yeah taken advantage of at a lot of turns and just making some bad decisions too you know and it just sucks because like the whole time her like anytime her family was asked about it they're like she's an adult making her own decisions and it's like she's obviously not in her right mind right now can like at some point like you can't just be like that's her own decision i can't stop i can't step in it's like no you can and you should and like in the 2018 whitney documentary it is so aggravating because We talked about her for quite some time, and drugs were a big part of it. And during the documentary about her life, Bobby Brown was asked, he goes, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, like the impact that drugs had on her life? And Bobby goes, why would we talk about that? That has nothing to do with Whitney. And the guy was like, well, I think it does because of how she died. And he goes, no, no, I'm not talking about that. 
no, that, why are, why would you, this, that's not what this documentary is about. And he goes, it's about her life. And <laughs> drugs were a part of that. And he goes, no, it wasn't. It's like, what? <laughs> delusional. Bobby! He's delusional. I hate him so much. And like one of the girls in the podcast, like actually, he has multiple autobiographies if you'd like to pick one up. And they are, she was like, it is the worst thing I've ever read in my life. Like it is so self-promoting. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> All right. So we're going to leave Bobby and we'll be right back. We will. (laughs) We're back. Part two. Shorter story. Zantapi, uh, Zantapi, Zantapi. I call her Zan. <laughs> I like um, Zan. So it is Z A N T H I P P E, but all of the Grecian pronunciations oh. did not pronounce the H. But there were some people who were saying Xanthopy, but and you mean X? Yeah, X. That's okay. what I meant. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Just because it pronounced like a Z, but no, it mm-hmm. is X. Um, but the the TH was what the variation was on. Mm-hmm. Xanthopy versus Xantopy, but I'm just going to call her Xan because it's cute. I love Xan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so do you want to know what you're drinking? Yes, I do. Okay, so this is called Taming of the Xanthopy, <laughs> and it is an, kind of a uh, alcoholic half and half or alcoholic Arnold Palmer, depending on where you're from. It is one and a half ounces of lemon elderflower vodka, mm. one and a half ounces of lemoncello. You rim a highball glass with sugar and you put in equal amounts of lemonade and iced tea and just put a lemon circle in there. I love it. Cheers. Mmm. That is delightful. It's very refreshing. Doesn't taste boozy at all. No. And there's a lot mm. of alcohol in there. Mm-hmm. I ended up putting three ounces of vodka and three ounces of limoncello, like split between the two. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's I like love that. two shots of alcohol in there and you can't mm-hmm. taste it. Mm. That's perfect. It could use like a dash of bitters maybe. Mm. It might make it more interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. That would be good. All right. So right. tell me what you know about Xantope. I guess I don't know anything. I'm going to be honest. Okay. I don't even know if she's real or fictional. Okay, she's real. Oh, she's real. She is real. That's exciting. And coming up soon in the story, you're going to know exactly who she's married to. <gasps> so Ooh. her husband is extraordinarily famous. I've been keeping it from no. you all week. I've been oh, keeping I'm it. <laughs> is you, does she have like a famous last name? That no. Like, oh, okay. No. I don't think they were using surnames in the same way. Okay. Um, but her husband's really, really famous. And when they said his name, I was like, I didn't know he had a wife. So this is a fun. Ooh. Act. Okay. I'm excited. All right, so I found the best source I found was like this encyclopedia.com and it had like a full encompassing mm. pieces of information. It wasn't chronological, but it was the best source I found. Everything else was like half pieces of information. Um, there's a play, an off-Broadway play called Xanthopy that I like watch some clips on YouTube, but it's a pretty big just joke okay 
Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. Okay. So Zan was born around 435 BC. So this is ancient Greece, pre-Jesus Greece. And like I said in the description, her name meant yellow horse, which probably meant she had blonde hair. But there's a lot of Grecian names that have horse in it. Mm -hmm. Um, Philippos, which means friend of horse, and Hippocrates, which means horse tamer. Philippos. Yeah. Does that give us the name Philip? Yeah. Well, and then Prince Philip had a horse in oh, Sleeping Beauty. Oh, that could be it. But also, like, <laughs> Philly means love. Yeah. You know, like and a the Philly Philos. is a baby horse. Yeah. So all of that, like... I love it. It's all connected. It is. All those terms lead to what we have today. But what we know is in all of those names, the hippo part, H-I-P-P-O, in ancient Greek signified that you had um, like aristocratic heritage. So we Mm. think, we don't know a lot about her childhood, but we at least think that she was fairly wealthy. Okay. Now, another reason that suggests that her family was kind of prominent is her eldest son was named after her dad and not after her husband's dad. So her oldest son, and like back then, Mm -hmm. you would name the kid after your first son after the most prominent grandfather. Okay. And her son is named after her dad. Oh, interesting. So um, all this talk of children, rich girl, let's talk about who she was. Okay. The answer is we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know a lot about her life. We only know who she is because of who she ended up marrying. But before we get to that, we can learn some things about Grecian women. She was from Athens, so that helps us a lot Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they were the biggest recorders. We know more about women in Athens than any other Greek city-state, and and then Sparta's like a second. Mm -hmm. Um, women in Athens had very few rights compared to men. They couldn't vote, they couldn't own land, and they couldn't inherit. We know that female babies were at a much higher risk of being abandoned mm-hmm. at birth. So her family had money to kind of want to keep her around. Interesting. Girls were educated in Athens, but it was a different skill set that they were being focused on, where boys, it was to stimulate intellectual development okay. for girls it was teaching you how to be the manager of a household yeah mm-hmm. yeah you that's your job we know that boys in athens were given sexual partners as a mentor to mm-hmm. when they were young to teach them about worldliness this is a common thing in greece sometimes girls would get that but to a lesser extent because girls were expected to marry young and marry as a virgin Mm -hmm. um to a man selected by their father um at which point your guardianship would shift from your dad to your husband yeah and i feel like they were not seen as the uh necessarily i don't know if this is true greek culture but i feel mm-hmm. like throughout history it's like oh no the wife isn't for sexual pleasure no 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 no, no. she's for <laughs> like, having you're babies. for having babies yeah so like it's not as important right, to right, know right. yeah you're the b- breeding mayor yeah yeah mm-hmm. so speaking of which married women were expected to rear children and manage the house if you had a wealthy family you would have slaves to help you manage your house um but women especially uh could be um, brought to prosecution, prosecuted. Women could be prosecuted Uh if they didn't respect their husband, like openly not respect their husband. Hmm. 
And like you had to be like, yes, my husband's going to have all these mistresses. I respect him. He's the man of the house. Like if you openly disrespect your husband, it's a bad thing. So Xanthope was trained from birth to accept her role as a second rate citizen in the very, quote, democratic Athens. And, um, you know, she was probably in a wealthy family. Her husband was supposed to be a stonecutter by profession, but chose not to participate in that field. And apparently, once he made enough money stonecutting, he quit his job and just decided he wanted to talk about truth. Okay. So Zan's husband was Socrates. (laughs) Famous philosopher. Oh, my God. Socrates. Now, we're going to end up feeling like he's Bobby Brown by the end of the story. Oh, no. God damn it. I wanted this to be a better thing. Um, It's not, like, (laughs) as bad of a thing, but, like, A. He wasn't in New Edition? (laughs) No. (laughs) I didn't know. He's in whatever boy band Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato were in. I don't know. What's that going to be called? (laughs) I don't know, but I wish I knew more. (laughs) That's my philosophy. (laughs) There. There it is. There it is. There it is. <laughs> My love. I don't, that's not a real new edition song. But that girl is Plato. <laughs> I know that's not new edition. But. I know, I know, I know. I think it's like Druid Hill, right? It's what? Po- po- poison. Poison. <laughs> okay. Maybe it was new edition. I don't know. Who knows? I um couldn't believe, A, that Socrates is married. Yeah. And B, I thought he was his- like a monk. Right. Be that his wife's name is Xanthope and nobody told me. (laughs) I was fully unaware of this. Okay. So here's what we know about Socrates or what I knew going into this. I'm like, okay, he's a philosopher. He hung out in a white robe. He asked people questions like, what is virtue? Mm -hmm. And he was the teacher of Plato, who was the teacher of Aristotle, who taught Alexander the Great. Oh, so he is the beginning of the chain. The beginning of the chain. First domino. That in my history degree we learned is called spa. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great. It was like bam, 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 bam. These four great men, one right after the other. Oh, And they taught each other. They begat each other. Okay. (laughs) Socrates begat Plato, (laughs) who wrote the cave, who begat Aristotle, who was a dick, who begat Alexander the Great. Who conquered the world. (laughs) So, uh, who I'm named after. But couldn't hack the flu. Right. (laughs) I also learned, no, just, you know, he got killed by hemlock, right? That's the famous Socrates thing. He was put to death by the government and had to eat hemlock. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm dumb. I don't know anything. No. So that's uh, Socrates. um, He went on trial. For what? Heresy? Well, he taught everybody to question authority. Oh, they would be like. Authority doesn't like that. Right. They'd be like, (laughs) oh, well, this is illegal. And he'd be like, but why is it illegal? And he was teaching like all the young boys to ask questions like that. And they were like, you're perverting the youth. So he went on trial and then they were like, what do you think we should do to you? And he, like, gave him some stupid sentence. And they were like, no, actually, we're just going to put you to death by poison. Oh, so he had to poison. (laughs) Bringing it back to Belle Biv DeVoe. That's who knows that. Yes, it is. (laughs) I will never forget. To Dennis Quaid. (laughs) This memory is burned into my brain. Uh I had a friend in high school, Becca Burton, (laughs) formerly Becca Filler, 
shout out. She worked at <laughs> Oakcrest forever because you can get like a college scholarship. So she worked there forever and she invited us all to a Mardi Gras party at Oakcrest, which is an old folks home. I need to be and there. I am there. There is a dance floor. It's like six young girls and a thousand old people. And Belle Biv DeVoe, poison comes on. A dream. A, a dream scenario. <laughs> a dream. I, we had beads on us and that. I was like, what's better than this moment right now? Only better could be if somebody asked you to slow dance to that poison. song. <laughs> slow dance to the song with me. <laughs> Immediately. Poison. <laughs> that girl. <laughs> Can you imagine? Michael Bublé, do no, a I'm, cover, please. I was going for Frank Sinatra, but okay. <laughs> I mean, he is the new. He's the new Frank Sinatra. He's the Let's living. He's the living Frank Sinatra. About Shout that. out to Michael Bubble. Okay. <laughs> okay. You're poison. <laughs> okay. So here's what I didn't. Those are the things I did know. Here's what <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know he was married not once but twice. I didn't know that his first wife's name was Mirto and then Xanthope. Uh, some people say that Xanthope was his um, mistress, hmm. but it doesn't appear to be the case. It ap- okay. Because it appears that his first wife remarried as well. So it seems like, because divorce was legal in Athens, so oh. it seems like they split ways and then both got remarried. Um, I also learned that Socrates had three children with Xanthope, all boys, hmm. um, and via the words of Aristotle, they didn't amount to much. Oh! <laughs> shade! Shade wow, from Aristotle. the OG Tin the Tool Man Taylor. I mean, his philosophy <laughs> grandson said they were shitty. <laughs> oh my yeah. god. Um, I also learned that Socrates was openly bisexual and was truly hmm. in love with the Athenian general oh loved him okay and this guy sent him like a big cake at one point like a fancy (laughs) decorated cake (laughs) most importantly i learned that he was supposed to be working all day when he was in the town talking about whatever the fuck he was talking about he was supposed to be working as a stone cutter supporting his wife and children (laughs) but socrates didn't want to do that he only wanted to do philosophy. So he neglected his family interests to seek truth. There you go. Zan <laughs> not only had to raise her sons by herself, but she also had to run a household without her husband earning money to sustain it. And she wasn't allowed to have a job. Furthermore, it appears that when his first wife became a widow, Socrates sent money to sustain her. Wait, when she became a widow? His His first wife got remarried, became a widow, and then Socrates is supporting her. But Zan and her three sons are not even getting enough to feed themselves. So she's like, what the fuck? Like, what's happening? Yeah. So it's like you're morally dedicated to them, but not to your family here. The current family that you have right (sighs) now. You're just going to sit around and be like, but what is love really? Yeah. But you know what? That makes me think that like maybe like his first wife was like, higher up in the social hierarchy than yeah. Zan was, and she was a more public persona. And, like... Well, she was the daughter of a politician. There you go. Mm-hmm. It's exactly... Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You read the situation I well. read it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> so Socrates seems to have not personally suffered from his lack of money um, because... He was a simple man of simple wants. No, that's not true. (laughs) Actually, he would go into town, teach all the rich kids children, and then they would take him out, wine him and dine him, 
feed him, give him whatever he wants, and then we don't have evidence that he took that food and drink back to his fucking family that he had. He seems like a man who's like uh, making a salary off of perks. Yeah. And you can't bring perks back to your family. Right. Like, (laughs) you still need to pay rent, and Mm -hmm. you can't pay rent with a nice hamon. Look, I know you got that stress ball at your <laughs> conference, but I'm going to need but a I check need to eat. Good. Thank you for that okay. lanyard. <laughs> but love this pen that <laughs> scrolls out. Love it. This is a great chapstick. <laughs> okay. What's more swag that we can name? <laughs> That's it. I'm done. Drawstring backpack. Okay. Damn. <laughs> little football, little squishy football. <laughs> I think that counts as stress ball. Damn. <laughs> All, All right. It's right, fine. You win. Okay. <laughs> so, Zan, <laughs> like a good Grecian wife, was expected to just shut her mouth, mm-hmm. support her husband and his choices, no debate, but she became famous in Athens Why? for being the never silent, shrewish <laughs> wife of Socrates. She scolded him in public for his inability to fulfill his familial responsibilities. Picture this. <laughs> I would love to, actually. Socrates, holding open discussion in Athens. His wife barges in and is like, you're supposed to be at work. Ah! You asshole. Ah! D- like, dumps buckets of chamber pots on him in oh, public. No. In public. And he's like, but what is work, really? And like, says, work is providing for your family, you like, piece of shit. Go to fucking work. Her boldness was thought to be so out of place for any respectable Athenian woman of the period that it actually verged on a criminal offense, (gasps) especially because she was embarrassing with her brazen behavior, the saintly Socrates, like somebody that people before, obviously before he ends up going to jail, but like saw him as amazing from what we know. (laughs) Zan definitely overstepped the bounds of wifeliness on a regular basis she would like i said douse him with chamber pot fluids um when she caught him philosophizing instead of earning a living but socrates understood this he liked zan Hmm. he thought she was fucking cool Hmm. and one like when she would fly off the handle he was like, no, she's upset because this is in the interest of our family. Um, the reason we know this is at one point she scolded her oldest son in public and he like freaked out like my mom can't talk to me like that. And Socrates berated his son and was like, when she unleashes herself on us, it's because she loves us and she's trying to make us better. So like, let her fucking be violent. Yeah. <laughs> like He was just chill with it. And another time, Socrates was asked in public how he tolerates his wife um, and, like, how do you live with this terrible shrew? And he gave this whole speech. He compared it to an equestrian who loves to ride a spirited horse. Mm. He's like, you want to be with somebody who challenges you and, like, makes you better and, like, tries to do things. And she did that. She fought him at every turn. And he loved a good debate. 
however useful, though, a spur Zan was to inspire Socrates, and no matter how much he loved and tolerated her, or I'll say love in quotes, yeah. um, he did not accommodate her criticism. So even though he said, like, I'm glad she challenges me, he never changed himself or his ways. And he actually died a very poor man, leaving them with nothing, Fuck. which is terrible. I hate that, too, because it's like... It's frustrating because, like, he wants to create ideas that could change people for the better, but he himself is not changing. He's not willing to change. He's not willing to change. Right. And I think he sees – he is very full of himself in that he sees that he has this higher purpose for Athens. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, he is known as, like, the father of Western philosophy – his ideas changed the world. We, the way we speak in college is still called a Socratic seminar because yeah. of him. Mm-hmm. Like, but it's very interesting to me that somebody that I thought was this amazing figure was neglecting. They weren't like doing that on top of things. I think some people do it on top of. Yeah. He was neglecting the base roles in life that like I have this wife and these children that I need to take care of. Well, and I think that it's why I don't even know why I thought that he was like a monk type figure, but I think it's because we don't like to acknowledge the truth that he was ignoring people in his life. You know, he was a it, bad husband. He was a bad husband, a terrible bad father. father, and we it's uncomfortable to acknowledge that it is. So his passion and his skill was obviously in philosophy. And at that time, sitting around talking didn't earn you enough money to eat. Um, Zan appears to have had every reason to be upset. And um, it didn't matter in the eyes of the large group of young men that were disciples of Socrates. Because one thing that's important to know about Socrates is he didn't write. I don't know if he was unable to write, but we don't have anything at all that he wrote down. Hmm. All we have about Socrates are accounts from his students, Plato being his most famous student. But there are so many noble Greek men Mm -hmm. that wrote down what he said. So we only get to see Zan through their eyes Mm. and she just keeps coming in interrupting their time with him so she is very harshly treated by most of these people um the way they talk about her the way that they treat her like she's a vicious nag in all of this um is so much in contrast to the way socrates is recorded as this hero as this inspiring person and Zan is the woman trying to squash his knowledge so I mean eventually this is what's going to happen Zan's worst experience that she suffers at the hand of Socrates is on the eve of his death like I said earlier he goes to trial gets sentenced to death she's obviously fucking crying her eyes out because her husband is about the father of three children is about to be put to death. Um, and she knows now she's gonna, I think her oldest son is now going to have to be her guardian who like already was like mad that she was criticizing him in public. But Socrates had no sympathy for how much she was crying and like her emotions. He couldn't deal with it as his hours grew short. 
So he banishes her from the room so that he can have quiet debates with his friends. In his last moments of life. Last moments of life chooses to kick out his mourning wife so that he can debate with his friends. That is terrible. So upsetting. It's like, hate him. (laughs) Yeah, that's not good. (laughs) It's not good. It's not okay. It's not okay. Of course, after his death, Socrates became a cultural icon. Um, I will say, though, like, obviously, this is like 400 B.C. He didn't become like a cultural icon until the Renaissance, you know, like 1400s or whatever. Um, But Zan also has made it that far. She got consigned to the role of the overly emotional, overly concerned, overly nagging wife that we still use today in yeah. all of our culture. We don't know what year Zan died or really what happened in her life after that, but we do know how she's remembered. The first crew to remember her were Socrates' loving followers. We're going to start with Plato. <laughs> and Plato is the most respectful of her. He wrote of her once in all of his writing, and he portrayed Zan as a devoted wife and mother. So good for you, Plato. We'll keep you on. <laughs> Um, another one of his famous students portrays her very differently. He says, quote, that she is the hardest to get along with of all the women there are. But he, (laughs) he adds all the women in the world of all the women that exist. (laughs) She's the worst, the worst, right? Okay. Okay. And then. Like, he does, though, add in his writings about Socrates. This is where we get the stories about Socrates liking her debate. So this is the guy that's like, look, she's hard to get along with, but that's why Socrates likes her. That's where we get that from. But from this guy is where we get the word Xantope, which means nagging, scolding person. And if you go on to thesaurus.com right now and type in Xanthope, the adjectives you find are hag, nag, <gasps> shrew, and vixen. <laughs> One of Socrates' other pupils depicts her as a jealous shrew in his description of an example in which she tramples on a large, beautiful cake that was sent by his lover. Uh, Aristotle wrote that there are no doubts that women were intellectually incapable of making important decisions for themselves. Uh, so these uh, guys are the ones that we are like it's respecting. Like, I, <laughs> it's so upsetting because these guys are what we base like our whole culture still now on. And uh-huh. now I'm like, okay, now it makes sense. Right. When Obviously, should there are other be, factors, whatever, but like, no, there's a lot of factors. We're basing it off of misogynistic assholes. assholes. Yeah. Elitist assholes. And what's crazy is, like, most people profess that they, like, believe in Jesus, who was like, hi, sex worker, I love you, let me help you, please, mm-hmm. I want to be your friend. But mm-hmm. they're actually following these yeah. douchebags who are like, my wife's a nag, ah! I fucking hate her. Women, right? Get her out of here. <laughs> I want a democracy, but, like, they don't get to vote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, want I want Athens. Yeah, you don't want the Middle East. You want Athens, you bitch. Yeah. So, anyway. Another follower wrote down the story of her dumping the chamber pot and reportedly afterwards Socrates said, after thunder comes rain. (laughs) Um, 
another this is a fake quote it's like misattributed to socrates but this is one of his most famous quotes okay um he says by all means marry if you get yourself a good wife you'll be happy forever after if you by chance get a common scold like my xanthope then you become a philosopher like wait is is that a compliment <laughs> because she was a so... backhanded compliment i've ever heard in my life exactly but the thing is like he didn't even say it that's just what we quote that he said yeah so that's frustrating it's also i i hate the whole thing too of like well you can only be like a successful comedian if you had like a shitty childhood right. it's like do a lot of them have shitty childhood? like yes but you don't have to like what the fuck is that shit it's like yeah. the only way you can be a philosopher is if you have a bitch wife <laughs> get her on yeah find the worst one okay since 430 ish bc she has been referenced in literature over and over again mostly because the men who bring her up were relatively famous philosophers <laughs> so after the renaissance she's brought back to life and so are all of those men so her story is reinvigorated and a little guy named William Shakespeare wrote a play called The Taming of the Shrew. No. And in Act 1, Scene 2, Katrina is described as Socrates' Zan or worse. Okay. So uh -huh. now I'm screaming internally. <laughs> so without she is the Xanthope, shrew. we would not have the shrew. Yeah. A.K.A. 10 Things I Hate Ten About things You. 10 Things I Hate About You. Taming of the Shrew. There were so many um, <sighs> clips of 10 Things I Hate About You in, in Xanthope research. That's so wonderful. I know. <laughs> she is the shrew that we're trying to tame. Oh, my God. She's the shrew. That's why the cocktail is called Taming of the Xanthope. That's I what it should be called. I that. <gasps> so. She is in letters in the 1700s that men write. She is in books. She is in poems. And throughout the years, her name became synonymous with difficult wife. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe mentions her. James Joyce mentions her in Ulysses. Robert Graves mentions her. They all bring up the name Xanthope. In 1910, there is a species of African white-tailed shrew that gets named after her. Then there's this palm tree called the Socratea that gets inhabited by beetles, and they name the beetle the Xanthope. <laughs> then there's a play in London in the 1990s named after her, and you can watch these clips on YouTube, and it's bananas. It looks like a skit that a Boy Scout troop put on, but... She becomes a character um, in the video game Assassin's Creed, the Odyssey edition, where Socrates brings her up when what? he's talking about her. And then most recently, in the TV sitcom Unbreakable Kimmy Smith, the wealthy daughter of um, who? Jane Krakowski. Who? Jane Krakowski. Of Jane? Who plays Jenna? Yes. Yeah. Her daughter, the brown-haired, whiny, mm -hmm. bitch-ass daughter in the show, her name is Xanthope Jorge's. No. I've and never seen that show. It's such a good show. I need to watch but it. But she is, like, whiny and rude and, like, the definition of a shrew. And her name is Xanthope Jorge's. Oh, And they call her Xan, which is where I got the nickname. <gasps> um, mm -hmm. And then, okay, 
The reason I think she's so important in history is that Xanthope did nothing but demand what was promised to her. Yeah. And demand it loudly. She didn't ask for the right to vote. She didn't ask to have a job as a woman. She didn't ask to be a religious leader or to wear pants or to ride, you know, not side saddles. She wasn't doing anything crazy. All she wanted was to be a wife and mother and her husband wouldn't let her do it. And I love that for her, her she's demanding the bare minimum <laughs> and she is the shrew of the all time of the century the <laughs> millennia what it's crazy so women are burned at the stake for not fulfilling their role in womanhood and socrates is revered as a great thinker even though he did not fulfill his duty as a man amazing um so I just thought this was a fun story. <laughs> I love it. Oh my god. That's the uh that's the story of Zan and the taming of the shrew and 10 things I hate about you and she is the reason that a woman is considered a nagging wife. She is the basis for every like sitcom wife joke. In existence. Who, like, runs in while the... Oh, even um, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, where she goes into the poker party and starts, like, Wait. throwing yes! vegetables. Yes! <laughs> like, she's oh, so mad that he has his friends God. over. She is the, she's the joke. She's the butt of the joke. Yeah. Can you imagine? That's shitty. I feel Fucking bad for her. God. <laughs> I can't believe that. I know. All right. Well, now we need to talk <laughs> about these two women in conversation with each other in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. I wish I wish that Whitney was more of a Xanthope. Why I, didn't she fight back? I just wanted her to stand up to Bobby more. Mm-hmm. And it's so frustrating. And you know why? It's because she was like, no, like my mom was divorced twice and I don't want that to happen to my daughter. And it's mm-hmm. like, she's focused on the wrong thing. It's like, she's not worried about her daughter growing up in a household with where cocaine is in. Also, I almost died in the documentary. They're like, there was cocaine in candy bowls, all- <laughs> which is a quote we say Linda? in my family all the time. Cause my aunt Linda apparently went to a Hollywood party at Gary. No, Elliot Gould's house. Elliot Gould's house. Yep. She with was, Gary Busey. With she Gary Busey. With Gary Busey. Yeah. Elliot Gould was there. Elliot Gould. Everybody's there. <laughs> you sound like idiots. <laughs> this is a true story. My aunt went to a Hollywood party and like she famously said, she goes, there was candy bowls full of cocaine everywhere. And that is the life that Whitney Houston was living. Right. And she was more concerned about not being divorced than not having Bobby Christina growing up in a household where there was frequent drug use. Well, and I just wrote down Socrates equals Bobby Brown. Oh, my God. Yes. It was like the person who is, like, holding you back. And it's like, you're doing everything you're supposed to do. Whitney and Xanthope were doing Mm -hmm. everything they were supposed to do. And they were connected to Mm. a spouse that was dragging them down. Yeah. And they were also defending their children or not defending them. But like they're trying, like I was thinking about the two scenes where like Socrates thought that Zan was cool because like she is scolding her son in the middle of the street and being like, you need to stop. And he's like, okay, that's cool. Like she's actually like standing up to she's this pretty guy. Badass. Whatever. Yeah. 
And Bobby never respected Whitney in that way. Like I was thinking about that in comparison to the scene where Bobby is criticizing Bobby Christina for having like neck rolls and Whitney, Mm -hmm. the only time she really, it seems to stand up to Bobby is to be like, you're not going to talk about my kid that way. Mm. And I think that even though Whitney made a lot of mistakes when it came to her kids, I do her kid. I do think that that was kind of at the forefront of her mind. And like when someone was directly threatening her kid, she was like, absolutely not. But then it also is like, but she's also being a little bit of a Socrates and she's like not really acknowledging the harm that she's doing to her kid. Right. Which is really upsetting. I also thought about when people were upset with Whitney Houston um, for not being black enough. Mm -hmm. And she's just like, I'm a black woman. What do you want me to do? I'm just doing what I'm good at. And Mm -hmm. it's like people were angry at Zan because they were like, you're being too loud as a woman. Yeah. Like you're not being woman enough. And she's like, no, I want to be a woman. And He's you're not, not letting, letting me. me. Yes. Like, I want to, do, I want to sweep and cook and clean and rear children. And I can't. Yeah. She's like, I can't cook food if I don't have any food to cook with. Right. And I also can't buy it because this society is having me make zero money. Like <laughs> yeah. she had Nothing because both of these men were also actively taking from their households. And these women are trying to scrap together. Well, and I, scrap together for Whitney Houston is like $100 million. Yeah, but, but it like, was at the end because everybody was taking her shit. Everybody was taking. And I feel like that was what Zan was going through too of like, no one is considering like my feelings in any of this. And no one was considering Whitney's feelings. Right. Her family, and especially Bobby, drained her they saw her as a pawn and i kind of feel like socrates is doing the same thing it's like no but like that's your job to take care of the family it's like no whitney that's your job to take to make all the money and she's like but i can't i i should be doing more but i can't because now my sole job is yelling at you in the middle of the street (laughs) my sole job is going on tour when i cannot physically do that it sounds to me that socrates and bobby brown married somebody to check a box yes we know socrates was in love with this man who was Mm -hmm. the athenian general Mm -hmm. we know that bobby brown was having constant affairs Mm -hmm. but they both thought i want to have a wife well it's interesting too because they wanted someone to check a box. And I think both of these women amassed an amount of power that they were not expecting. Mm-hmm. Bobby Brown, I think when he first met Whitney, was always expecting her to be lesser than him. Like subservient almost. Yeah. I think because I think at that time, it's why he brags about courting Janet Jackson as well. Even though I don't think he ever did. Because <laughs> he's like, no, like Janet Jackson is a star. He's like, Whitney's not going to be Janet Jackson. Yeah. But then, frankly, she became more than Janet Jackson, if we're going to be honest. Like, you know, and I don't think he was ready for that. I think he was like, no, I'll be married to, like, a cool person who, like, thinks I'm amazing. Yeah. Because Whitney did. She thought he was amazing. And that's another big difference between them. Mm -hmm. It's like, for some reason, like, Whitney worshipped Bobby. And I will never for the life of me understand why. No. But Zan was not under the same guise with 
Socrates. Which is why I want to pick Robin out of Whitney's story and drop her with Zan. Zan needed a Robin. She needed a friend. Zan needed a Robin. And she might have had one. I don't know. We don't know enough about her, but she needed a Robin. Yeah. And I also, like, I was thinking about how, like, people after Zan, you know, would sometimes be like, oh, God, like, she was the worst. Like, she's known in history as the worst. The wife that you never want to have. And I was thinking about how Bobby still talks ill of the dead. He still shits on Whitney. He still claims that he she lies about having a miscarriage. And another part that really bugs me is that, like, we're talking about these two insanely powerful women who demanded like they they were amazing in their own right and we can only talk about their husbands it's so infuriating it's it is these, infuriating it's infuriating i wish i could find a, a similarity between these two that weren't associated with their men but i i can't because like zan didn't have enough of a story right. of her own no of course because it's being told through men via a man i would say like one of the things that might be drawn between them is just that these two women no matter what are legendary yes like their names like zan's name means something else now Mm -hmm. it has its own literal dictionary meaning like it can be used as an adjective yeah and i think that whitney's voice speaks for itself Mm -hmm. so i think that even though they're so on earth connected to these men. And Socrates has his own legend going, but nobody knows that he was married to Xanthope. So she's just her own word. Bobby Brown is just a shit in the bucket later. Uh So I think that Whitney and Zan, they, their actions, their voices, Mm -hmm. their talent speaks for themselves. They're legends on their own. I agree. Despite their asshole husbands. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to toast? I'm so ready to toast. Okay. Um, Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I want to toast to women who ask for what they were told they were going to receive. I think it's really hard sometimes to l- look at somebody and be like, you said I would get X, Y, Z. And then I did blah, blah, blah. And you mm-hmm. didn't do the thing. Whether mm-hmm. it's like... You didn't pay me on Venmo. Like we all went out to lunch and mm-hmm. I paid and you all said you'd pay me and you didn't. Yeah. Like you need to ask for what's owed to you because yeah. women are told to be quiet. And Zan was refusing that 400 BC. Yeah. She was like, no, I'm not going to sit down and do what I'm supposed to because you told me yeah. that this was the rules. That's amazing. So cheers. cheers. What do you got? I am going to toast the women who are still swimming in the Olympics among sharks. (laughs) (laughs) Whitney Houston did so much despite everyone around her just taking advantage every chance they could. Mm. There are so many people who are just solely focused on how her work and her career could benefit them. And it really bothered me. It really fucking bothered me. So, but she still thrived and she's still a legend. Like we don't know a lot of those other people in the documentary's names. And I don't think we should fuck her dad. Yeah. Who cares? Fuck Bobby. Fuck her brother. I don't care. Like, 
Yeah, I don't know. Just to the women who are still thriving and winning gold medals in the fucking Olympics, even though they are swimming, even though there's sharks in the fucking pool. Yeah. So cheers to them. Cheers to them. <laughs> fly, is that a control? There is a fly who's obsessed with Katie. <laughs> I uh, went to drink and it was sitting on the rim of my glass. Obsessed. Okay. <laughs> so, promo. Um, I, this week was in the car with the girls, um, on the way to summer camp and Coolio's gangsta paradise came on, (laughs) which is like one of the songs I know every word to, but it is different when you listen to it with your kids. (laughs) And I think it's different when like you realize the same shit is still happening. Like I feel the same way when I listen to Tupac's changes where he's talking about like police brutality and I'm like, it's been 30 fucking years. So anyway, there there's a lot like we're just kind of quietly in the car. Everybody's kind of like me. The girls are probably looking at their phones, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of humming along and the line comes on where he's like, I'm 23 now, but will I live to see 24 the way things are going? I don't know. And (laughs) Eliza was like, whoa, (laughs) I was like, yeah, whoa. Like, yeah. That is something you need to talk about. Like when yeah. you live in a large city and there's drugs and guns and yeah. um, it's just really dangerous. So I just think it's a really good song and thinking about the fact that it's 30 years old and we yeah. still have the same problems and are choosing not to deal with them as a yeah. society. Yeah. So I just, I went into promo that song, like take a listen to it and just remember that like how old it is yeah. and how we haven't fixed anything yet. Yeah, that's true. So your turn. Mine is on the exact opposite side of the spectrum. I bought these little mesh bags for my produce at the grocery store, and I love them. Those, like, white mesh bags that you put in your drawer? I've always wanted them. You know, they're the kind that, like, are classic onion bags that, like, they Uh come in this little net, and then you can hang them up and just keep your onions in them. Because I don't know if anybody else experiences this at the grocery store, but they never put the bags that you put the produce in in good spots, which I know it's like maybe it's a good spot for the onions, but it's not a good spot for the asparagus or the lemons. Yeah, I just stopped using the bags. I just put them straight in my cart for produce <laughs> and then I was typing the code. I'll do that with like onions and like other stuff like, you know, like bananas or whatever, mm-hmm. but like. With, like, lemons and limes are, like, they're small, and I'm getting mm-hmm. a good bit of them. I can't have those rolling around in no, the no, cart. No. That's, That's bananas. May- it's mayhem yes. at that point. So I got these. They're from Ikea. You know, they're not that crazy expensive for two of them. So I got mm-hmm. four, mm-hmm. and I love using them. Mm-hmm. I really do. They are great. Some things I still put in the plastic bags, like broccoli, just because it's kind of wet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Broccoli's so wet. It's just so wet. Um, you know how broccoli is <laughs> so anyways i really like the little mesh bags for produce i've been enjoying that in my life helpful so we That's love you all us. we love you <laughs> follow us everywhere find us everywhere join us on patreon mm-hmm. patreon for one extra dollar a month and you get extra fun with us mm-hmm. i talk to you you tell us what you think about our little after show fun <laughs> Uh, and we take your suggestions for upcoming seasons and whatever. And it just helps us fund this podcast because that uh, elderflower and lemon, like, alka vodka. We're going to use it forever. 
we're gonna have to because now every drink has to have it in it yes (laughs) um but yeah and you know join us on cocktail or tipsy tuesdays we post the cocktail recipes Mm. they're very fun we have author interviews we're just doing lots of cool things over Mm -hmm. here so join us um but most of all we want you to never forget that well-behaved women whisper when they say the race of another person in public yes yes they do and they really make history goodbye to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye